You are listening to a podcast produced by the Center for West European Studies and the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and Sound. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Brexit. Um, so I've been doing versions of the presentation for three years since the Brexit referendum in June 2016. I can't believe we're still talking about this. Uh, and um, yes, I, I'm a UK citizen, so I have a stake in this. Uh, my dad was English, and I'll get I'll get to that in a in a minute. Um, so, but I want to start where I think any discussion of Brexit should start, which is Shakespeare. And it's uh, this quote from Richard II play, Richard II. I don't know if you might have heard the phrase, the sceptered isle. Um, so any English teachers here? Anybody do Shakespeare in their class? All right, great, great. Yeah, so, you know, so the scene is late 14th century England, and England suffers under the misrule of the petty tyrant Richard II. And his uncle, John of Gaunt, gives this famous speech on his deathbed, you know, and uh, there's a nice Patrick Stewart version of this. And I'll just read it really quickly. And he says, and here he is, John of Gaunt, he says, this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this earth, this realm, this England. So Patrick Stewart does it better, but you know, you know, yeah, it's a famous quote. And this is really seen as kind of an early example of English nationalism. Shakespeare's writing in the late 16th century, Here's, you know, all this stuff about how great England is versus these less happier lands. And you'll you often hear this phrase, this blessed plot, or this sceptered isle to describe England, you know, quoted uh, by, by various politicians and writers. So I think you really need to understand English nationalism to understand Brexit, right? This idea that the English think that their country is somehow special. Of course, all countries think that their country is special. But the English think their country is special, especially vis-a-vis Europe, right? Uh, that you know these other countries have these problems, but you know England, when we you know are on our own on our island, our sceptered isle, you know we're strong, we're safe, um, and uh, we, you know we're a happy land, right? So I think you know you can kind of understand that mentality informing kind of still English nationalism today, uh, and, and also kind of a lot of, the, you can hear kind of the echoes of this in the Brexit, pro-Brexit speakers and politicians about how they talk about England and Englishness. Um, notice I said England, not Britain. We'll get yes. to that in a minute. <laughs> it's a very important distinction. Um, but let me give you a modern example that um, I like to use, which is, how many of you guys saw Dunkirk a couple years ago? Yeah, great movie. Um, so, 
Yo, uh, I, I love that film, and, and yo, that was a um, uh, example. I think people said it's a Brexit movie because yo, who, who in the movie? Who are the bad guys? Germans. The Germans, right? They're coming in to surround the British army, trying to escape, right, back to England to safety, right, to the island. Where are the French in all this? They're surrenders, right? right? So, you know, um, yeah, so from the English perspective, the British perspective, I'll say British now, um, is that, you know, Europe is either like a threat or just a problem, you know? So it's like, you know, threatening Germans are the feckless French in this instance, right? But they, they booze around, you know? And in all cases, we're just better off without them. Let's just leave and go back to England. And so this, this, this history is kind of the history my dad grew up with, you know, this Dunkirk spirit, right? This generation grew up during the war. And, and I grew up him reciting all this, you know, and he would, he would test me on this. And he said, do you know who that was? And he'd do the whole thing, he'd be drinking his cold 45s. And he'd go, you know who that was? And I'd say, Henry V, no, it's John of Gaunt. Oh, he got it wrong. So he just, I, I, I was like raised with this, okay? And so, so it is passionate to me. It's important, not just because I have citizenship, but I was raised with, you know, a different generation. I'm, you know, I love the EU. Uh, I think the EU is important. So, you know, I kind of see this as like, okay, this is kind of nice history and stuff like that, but today's Britain is about being part of Europe. You know, it's about... Um, it being in the global economy, um, this is a different era. But opinion, obviously, within Britain varies. So I was really, you know, loving the EU and, 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 and you know, Britain. You know, when the referendum came, it was like my nerd Super Bowl. I was, I was watching everything. I was, like, following everything. And I thought it was going to be close, but that Britain would remain. So I was very disappointed for right, I reveal my preferences here. Um, and, you know, I watched all the returns very closely, you know, I mean, I was like, refresh, 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 BBC, and, you know, I was shocked when it flipped kind of the reverse of what I was expecting, and so I make no more predictions on this, um, and, but why, why did England primarily vote so strongly for Brexit? You can see Scotland voted to remain. Northern Ireland voted to remain. So overall, it's 52 to 48, 52 leave, 48 remain. In England, it was 53 leave, 47 remain. But Scotland, it was 67% remain. So they, they want to stay in the EU. They still want to stay in the EU. Um, and it was mostly England, which has most of the population, it was like very gross skeptical and voted to leave. Why? Well. There's been this long-standing fear that the EU encroaches on UK sovereignty. And this is exaggerated by the tabloid press, which Boris Johnson contributed to quite mightily during his journalistic career. Um, but he's one of many. Um, and so, you know, they're going to change the shape of bananas and take away our British pints and all this kind of stuff, get rid of the pound, you know. And, and some of the, the kernel of truth, the law is very exaggerated. Um, and then there was the the Eurozone crisis and the weak European Union. Why do we want to be a member of the club that has so many problems, right? And then there's fears, of course, over immigration. Not in the places that have a ton of immigration or a lot of traditional immigration, like London dealt with the great immigration for a long time. It's just 
you know, very routine, but places that might have not had much immigration. It's kind of like the United States, where it's places, rural areas are more skeptical fear immigration than, say, the big cities. Um, and then a broader anxiety over jobs and globalization, just like here. You know, a lot of you know, industrial areas have lost jobs, and they fear that, oh, they're either being shipped overseas, uh, or immigrants are coming in and taking our jobs, and the EU aids and abets this process, right? It's, it's kind of a, it's like a stand-in for globalization, right? The, the EU gets the blame for this. And then also an anti-establishment backlash, uh, as in many European countries. Like, you guys weren't able to manage the Eurozone crisis, you had this financial crisis, everyone lost jobs and money. Um, you guys don't know what you're doing. Why should we listen to you when you say we should remain in the EU? All right? So the anti-establishment backlash in Brexit, the United States, France with Marine Le Pen, right? Front National, uh, other EU countries. And the basic split came down to, I mean, you can get more nuance in this, but just as in summary, younger and more educated voters opted to remain, right? By big, pretty big margin. Whereas older and less educated voters backed Brexit. That sounds familiar. There are some parallels. There are some parallels. Um, but um, I think one thing to think about in this case is there's one generation that's grown up with the EU and thinks it's pretty normal, right? Uh, and there's an older generation that's still Dunkirk mode. That's part of it. But there's also kind of the younger generation and the people, who, particularly the younger generation that has degrees, and more people in Britain now, the younger generation, better educated than older generations, big expansion education. They're like, they, could, they see the EU as an opportunity. It's like, hey, I can go work in all these countries. I don't want to lose that. Older generation sees it as like, we lost the country we once loved. That's, that's generalizing pretty broadly. But you can see kind of like, they see it as more of a threat rather than as an opportunity. They're not gonna go move to Germany to work. They're not gonna move to Spain to retire. Yeah, there are people concerned about that, especially all the Brits that are living there now. Um, but you can see how there can be this, these social splits on leave and remain. And it came out pretty strongly. You see like London votes to remain. But London's richer, better educated. You know, from a lot of these industrial hinterland places, it's just like, oh, you're European, you know? You're just, you're part of the elite. So, um, yeah, so we had that split. Um, and here's, here's the tie back to Dunkirk. You can see Europe in this kind of situation is both to be feared and to be kind of like, like, ugh, you know. It's like they, they, they're either they're taking away our sovereignty or they can't get their act together. Right? It's that same threat or kind of like pro just problematic. Um, so you had that come up in the debate as well. Okay, so I won't spend a lot of time on this, but what you had was um, uh, Britain um, saying, um, you know, they, they became the first country that could invoke Article 50. So no country's ever withdrawn from the EU. <laughs> And so this is like new for everybody. It's just actually a new treaty article that didn't exist before the most recent treaty. So when Britain invoked Article 50, and it took them a while to formally do it, um, there's not a lot of guidance, right, uh, or precedent here. So this is all new for everyone. 
So the big question would be whether to have a hard or a soft Brexit. And you'll remember that David Cameron, the prime minister who voted to, or who chose to have a referendum, um, he left office in, in disgrace, basically, and was replaced by his conservative party peer, Theresa May. Um, and she said, um, you know, we're, we're going to do Brexit. Let me be clear, we're not leaving the European Union only to give up control of immigration again. And we are not leaving, only return to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. So they, she, was pretty, she was pretty adamant. It's like, okay, we're not going to do like a soft Brexit where you know, we, we, we leave the EU, but we still stay integrated with a lot of um, the institutions and, and policies. They wanted a stronger Brexit. So, but what, what were the different options uh, to, to consider? Um, I don't want to get too much into all of these, but you know, the basic flavors, soft versus hard Brexit, one soft Brexit version was the Norway option, which would be you remain in the single market, so free movement of, of goods, people, and the customs union, right, so the common external tariff, okay, with the rest of the world. Um, and you end up, uh, so that's nice, you know, for, for business, but the con is you end up accepting most of the EU's rules with no role in decision making. So Norway. Right, that's where yeah, you're going to the EEA. Um, you're like in, you're kind of like, you, you're, you're basically in, you're participating within Europe's economic block, but as a result, you have to accept most of the rules. That's Norway's situation. Switzerland's a little bit different. They have a bunch of bilateral agreements that are kind of very complicated. Uh, we're going to skip that one. Um, yeah, so that's. Switzerland, you know, they, their problem is they say we want to reduce EU Im uh, immigration to Switzerland. But if they do and they break their treaty on this, the EU can say all their other ones are, you know, now kaput. So Switzerland's vulnerable, even though it has a different kind of relationship based on these treaties. That's problematic too. Hard Brexit people are like, no way. So the hard Brexit people would be more like, we want like what Canada has with the EU. We just want a free trade deal. Right, but the problem with that is sectors like banking could be left out or have limitations on certain services. Service sectors might be left out. Right, so that is you don't have the access that you would through a single market. So and it takes time to negotiate. So the hard Brexit people are like, oh, we'll just do a free trade deal. People could be left out, right? Uh, and it's not so easy to negotiate a deal. These take years to negotiate. Some people, the real hardcore Brexit people say, like, we'll be like a trading state. We'll be like Hong Kong, right? It'll be, you know, Britain goes back to, you know, uh, ruling the waves and we'll be, you know, trading with everybody around the world. Um, but when you make yourself open as a free trade country, entrepot like this or Singapore, you know, and you lift your customs barriers to the world, your industries can suffer, right? Hong Kong or Singapore doesn't have a big car sector, right? But Britain does, and it could suffer, right? Because now you have a flood of uh, cheap imports. Or you could go to the, just revert to the WTO rules. This is what will happen if there's a no-deal Brexit on October 31st. So you retain your sovereignty, and you're participating in the WTO, which has low tariffs. But for instance, all of a sudden, you're going to have 10% tariffs on car parts and cars coming into Britain, 
and Britain has a big car industry that relies on parts coming from overseas, all of a sudden, that's much less competitive. And then they face tariffs going into Europe as well. So it's not, there could be a lot of disruption. And not to mention like weights at the border, global supply chains disrupted. Everything in Britain now is built around open access to the EU. About half of trade is with the EU. So this could be, very, even going to these WTO rules that are fairly open, could be very disruptive. That's what people fear with a no-deal Brexit. Okay, so um, what was the EU's position on all this? Um, so the EU was like, tell us what you want. Oops, you have a, no. Okay, um, tell us what you want. You know, you, you, you say you want to, you want, you know, you want to stay in the single market, you want, or you want to have access to the single market, let me rephrase it, you want to have access to the single market, um, but um, you're going to, if you do so, you're going to have to play by the rules. You're going to have to accept free movement of peoples. That's how the, Europe, the EU works. You know, you can't have the benefits of membership without the responsibilities. Whereas Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany says, you know, we'll ensure that negotiations don't take place according to the principle of cherry picking. You know, if you leave the EU, you can't come back and say, well, we'd like to keep this, this, and this, and this. No, that's not how it works. So the EU actually took a pretty hard line. And I think British negotiators thought, well, we just play them off each other. It didn't really work out that way. Because um, they all had, you know, they knew that they would all lose if they started getting played off each other. So they, they worked together. Uh, Pretty cohesive block on this. Hey Phil, how much uh, does uh, the UK get in terms of the cap? Because on your previous slide, yeah. two back, there was mm. something under the Hong Kong thing. Oh, yeah. And I just wondered, right. I remember in those early days, the French and the British yeah. did get quite a bit. Maybe that doesn't matter anymore. Right. So the cap is common agricultural policy, which are agricultural subsidies for EU countries. The British get some cap subsidies, but they've always resented the policy because they feel like they're subsidizing. They get they pay more than they get back, and they're subsidizing you know French farmers. <coughs> uh, and what the but then they if they leave the EU, they lose those subsidies. But what the leave leavers say is, um, we'll just take the money that we saved and spend even more money on British farmers. We'll do the subsidies, kind of like Norway does, basically protect their own. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so what's the deal they negotiated? So basically, um, they decided that you know they, they had a withdrawal agreement, which is just to turn. There's like the, the, the terms of the divorce. It's not even the long-term trade agreement. This is just the withdrawal agreement to leave the EU. And they said there'll be a transition period until December 2020 to negotiate that trade agreement and the long-term relationship. And during that transition. The UK will remain temporarily in the single market and the customs union and lose the decision making. So it'll be kind of coming like Norway for a while. Yeah. It's a transition period. Not, that's not so bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, not if you're a hardcore Brexit person. We'll get to that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, and they said, you know, during this transition period, we're going to have restrictions on state aid for industry so you're, you don't kind of undercut. You know, other European countries, you know, you can't cut your labor standards, all that kind of stuff. You don't want to race to the bottom where you then undercut European standards to get uh, uh, 
um, you know, an advantage. So yeah. it's like you're not escaping EU rules, which is what people were voting Brexit for. Is get away from all this. Um, and they said, you, okay, but on the plus side, UK financial services will get access to EU markets during this transition period. Maybe some restrictions, we'll work that out. Um, again, there's a lot of give and take. And, um, and then they agreed there would be the end of free movement. This is critical for the British. We don't want more EU immigrants coming into the UK. But they said, okay, but national, EU nationals in the UK for five years or more get to stay. Boris Johnson has agreed to this. And that was part of the withdrawal agreement, too. So, and then the, you know, the reciprocal part of that is then, like, you know, Brits and Spain and France, retirees won't get kicked out. So, there's a quid pro quo in this. So, that's, those are the basic provisions. The really hard part is what was called the Irish backstop. Right. How many of you heard of the Irish backstop? Okay, most of you heard of the Irish backstop. It's it's a point of like like very confusing. Let me see if I can explain it. Um, so the idea is, you know, right now there's an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, free movement of people and goods. If Britain leaves the EU, right, there will be a hard border would return. So you have customs checks, immigration, you know, um, everything. Um, and um, so that would be bad for the Good Friday peace accords that, were, that are also about 20 years old that have ensured peace in Northern Ireland uh, because it's like now North and South don't feel separate. They feel you know, closer, but Northern Ireland remains in the UK. But this is, you know, having this openness uh, has helped you know, bring the Irish in, in kind of a more conciliatory uh, relationship, right? Uh, so if you put that border back, people feel that that could reignite what they call the troubles, right? From 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. Um, so what we need is some kind of backstop. So if we can't get a trade agreement that keeps the border open, then Britain's going to have to remain in the customs union, right? Until, and the single market, until a border solution is found. Right? Until we figure out some way to square the circle so that you can leave the EU, but we can keep the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland open, you're going to have to stay. Well, no one can figure this out, how to make this border that's not a border work. And as a result, a lot of UK conservatives, the hardcore leavers, are like, we can't have something where you know, Britain is handcuffed to stay in the customs union and the single market by this backstop. So this is the thing that's caused the most consternation for conservatives, being trapped, right? They, want, they leave the EU, but they don't. They're stuck as Norway forever. Um, and they don't want that, especially this guy. I'll get to him in a sec. So, um, so you know, the, the UK government finished the withdrawal agreement with the EU and presented it to Parliament. They finished it up late last year. They presented it to Parliament in January. And it was defeated by historic margins, 230 votes, lost by 230 votes, right? Deeply unpopular. Uh, and then they brought it back in March, lost by 149 votes. And then, and then only by 58 votes on a third attempt. So they kept trying, and it just kept failing. Um, and they had a series 
of, um, they asked for an extension to Article 50, which the EU agreed to, uh, because otherwise Britain would have been ejected on March 29th with a no deal Brexit, right? Uh, which we're looking at a prospect of again. Um, so that was extended into April, and then they had this, you know, this free vote of alternative options. Let different members of Parliament propose different solutions and see if one would become the most popular. Nothing got a majority of votes, right? So like Parliament is hopelessly divided on this issue, right? So what they did was they said, okay, we'll just have an extension till October 31st. And, and then Theresa May agreed to step down and they would find a replacement for her. Now, one of the reasons Theresa May couldn't get a deal, well, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labor Party, right? he's kind of cool on the EU. He doesn't really like the EU. He's, like, he's a very left-leaning Labor Party member. He's the leader of the opposition Labor Party. He's kind of like Bernie Sanders, but not as much fun. Okay, uh, and he's also been accused of, of, of you know, uh, he hates NATO, of, of uh, issues with anti-Semitism or supporting anti-Semitic groups in the past. Um, again, he doesn't like the EU. He sees it as, traditionally he's seen it as this kind of free market plot. So he's not, he doesn't like a strong pro-EU, pro-Remain. His party is divided internally, right? So a lot of Remainers in his party as well, or and plus people that are leavers, so they're split. Um, and he doesn't have like the strong position to, 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 to get his party on one, on one uh, page. Um, and then Theresa May, we've, we've talked about as leader, her party is uh, divided between people that you know, may be open to the deal, They've, a lot of people voted for it, and then the hardcore Brexit people like this guy, Jacob Rees-Mogg, right? They, uh, very traditional. Um, they call him the right honorable member of the 18th century. Uh, and um, he heads the European Research Group, which basically feels no deal is better than a bad deal. So they just basically hate the backstop. They hate just, they just want no deal. They're just fine just leaving the EU. We'll just, we're Britain, we'll figure it out, you know? And I just, I think I have just enough time to show if I can get to because this will kind of sum up those divisions. Okay, not Jeffrey hey, are you Epstein. Tired of the media spinning the truth and pushing false narratives upon you. <laughs> so here they are. <laughs> They say it's made. UK. They say a deal is shot, and I lost the plot when I frequent the spots that I'm known to rock. I hear from the benches. When I'm on the block, remainers, they want to stop it and leave us. Say they have off. How? You aren't still with the chronic. They want to know how I've amended it. They say nothing's changed. They want to know how I do about you. You went up on things. Theresa May is the name, and it's all the same. Still pushing to lead. Still failing to lead. Still not admitting defeat. Still dodging questions by their bills of wheat. Still not love for our lead. Still taking the blame. Still losing your game. Still somewhere between leave and remain. 
Still looking after fascists all across the world. Still facing amendments in the Commons Guard. Still playing the time and still getting beat. And are still can't handle the heat from the PRG. Looking after fascists all across the world. Still facing amendments in the Commons Guard. Still playing the time and still getting beat. And are still can't handle the heat from the PRG. Apologies to Snoop Dogg there, uh, but uh, th there's been a lot of good satire in Britain uh, coming out of coming out of this. And you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, is now uh, got a nice position in, in Boris Johnson's government. Um, you know, a lot of these levers like Bogg and Johnson are all rather rather posh from the right schools. You know, um, very so they they're kind of yeah these this very elite. Um, but then, of course, say that the elites are all in Brussels. Um, so um, it's interesting, an interesting social dynamic. And then all these political machinations within, within the UK. So um, tell me about Scotland. So Scotland, um, definitely against leave. And there's threats. You know, they had a referendum. Yeah, there's, they, they say that they may go out again. And... There's also Northern Ireland, though, and the, 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 the woman in the backseat of the car in the video, Arlene Foster, repping Arlene DUP, this is the part, the UP is the party of uh, the Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, and they don't want any deal that they feel sells Northern Ireland down the river, you know, stuck within the EU, right? So they're very sensitive, and basically, Theresa May, um, she, she needed their votes to stay in power. So she's ultimately trapped, but it's her own fault because she called an election and she didn't need to and lost seats. So ultimately, she kind of put herself in a bad situation with all this. Um, and now with Scotland, yeah, I mean, who knows what will happen with Scotland. People say, will Boris Johnson be the last prime minister of the United Kingdom if, yeah, if then Scotland leaves? I mean, that's a little bit, there's a little hyperbolic, but they make the point. <laughs> Phil. Yes. Alice, one of our um, interns at the World Affairs oh, Council, sure. is from Scotland. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so it's it's causing all sorts of issues in the UK. Not to mention economic slowdown and but constitutional issues, the future of the UK. So yeah. I think it's also important to remember that the DUP are not widely aligned. Yeah. Because they're they're anti gay marriage and anti abortion and so they're not widely liked in Ireland. Um, so the only reason that 
they so they joined the um, coalition with Theresa May because Theresa May didn't have a majority in Parliament, and in order to get them to join that coalition, Theresa May gave Northern Ireland something like two billion. Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't a popular coalition. Yeah, yeah, but she she was dependent on them, so um, uh, the uh, yeah yeah they're very they're they're very conservative party and small, uh, but they have just enough seats to hold up the government or not. So um, so what happens if there's a no deal Brexit? So we have this October thirty first deadline coming up, and um, I have one more slide talking about that. But basically. If we have a no-deal Brexit, which we seem to, Boris Johnson is threatening will happen. Uh, the, well, the UK economy is already slowing down. Um, we, it, they, the economy shrank last quarter and is not looking good for this quarter. So two quarters of shrinking uh, uh, economy equals recession by technical definition. So that's not good. That would just reinforce that. Uh, if they go back to the WTO tariff rules, we talked about tariffs on things like the UK car industry already investment in the car industry and other industries is well down. Um, so the car industry is down 70% in 2019. Who wants to invest in the car industry in Britain if you don't know where things are going? Now part of that is also because like, car industry is slowing down, period. But you can see how this doesn't help. Um, British agricultural exports could face tariffs up to 45% going into the EU, all right? Certain, certain sectors, certain items like dairy products, uh, have high, hot, would face high tariffs. Um, they would, UK farmers would lose the subsidies, uh, but they could get replaced potentially. Um, but it's going to be disruptive. Um, so in, uh, immigration is down, including in-demand professionals. You know, like so, you know, nurses, for instance. Um, you know, you kind of rely on that professional talent coming in, and it also means that young people from the UK won't be able to go overseas if, if we have a no deal Brexit. Um, Food imports to the UK could be delayed and face tariffs, so prices could go up. There's talk of like you know grocery shortages. Um, I heard Domino's Pizza is stockpiling pizza sauce. <laughs> I was shocked because I thought it was all freshly made. <laughs> ruined it for me. Um, so they're stockpiling. So you're you, know, you have your pizza. You know, Britain is cut off um, and. Um, so there is, there is some concern about that. The, 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 uh, we'll talk about Boris Johnson, how he's addressing that in a moment. And then you know, you, the UK-based financial companies, which is a huge part of the UK economy, would uh, lose their passporting rights that allow them to market a lot of products in the EU. So that could have a huge effect on the, EU, uh, the UK, the very important UK banking sector. So those are just like, that's the, the highlights of the problems that could happen if there's no deal. So are we going, though, towards the final act? Theresa May was replaced last month, the Prime Minister, by Boris Johnson, former mayor of London. Uh, here he is in his first parliament appearance as uh, Prime Minister with his new uh, cabinet Brexit dream team. These are his cabinets made of a lot of very pro-Brexit members, so there's no internal dissension like Theresa May faced. They're just they're in it. Okay, all bought in. And so he becomes Prime Minister on July 24th after the uh, leadership contest to replace Theresa May. His hard Brexit position resonated with the Tory base. And the Tory 150 plus thousand 
party members, they voted between the two runoff candidates and he won. Okay, so, and that, the Brexit is popular with that base. Um, and he promised when he came to office, he said, he, or when he was running, he said he would renegotiate the withdrawal deal with the EU. You know, the one he said was so terrible that Theresa May had done. But then uh, he said to kind of turn it into a game of chicken, he says, but if we don't get a deal, I'm gonna withdraw on October 31st with a no deal Brexit. So, you know, the EU can negotiate a new deal with us or we're just gonna leave. October 31st, it's happening regardless, you know, either way. Um, so he's playing this game of chicken with the EU negotiators, but, um, but at the same time, making what, you know, preparations for uh, a no deal Brexit his absolute top priority. So he's canceled vacations for, you know, people in government before October. He, says, he makes it very clear, no vacations before October 31st, because we need to prepare for Brexit. You know, so he's kind of like reinforcing, he's signaling, it's like, I'm gonna drive over the cliff unless the EU negotiates some deal with us. But the EU is on holiday in August, for one. Uh, and there are no deals, I mean, there's, well, I mean, obviously they would come back to work out a deal, but you know, it's not good timing. Um, and there are, no, there are no negotiations going on right now. Um, so it's not looking good. Um, now, uh, I gotta wrap up, but just really quickly, a no-deal Brexit would be opposed by Parliament, right? It's still unpopular, it's the same Parliament. They wouldn't vote. They've already said they don't want a no-deal Brexit in a vote. Be the same now. Um, so Boris Johnson could try to just run down the clock uh, to October 31st, if that's his gambit, and then Britain leaves the EU, uh, or Parliament could try to block the government through some procedural move, right? Try to get a no-deal Brexit vote, try to block, just, just a de facto eject from, from the EU. Uh, they could have a no-confidence vote, and that's probably looking likely, where they come back from summer recess, September 3rd, the next day have a no-confidence vote. Uh, but the problem is there's no obvious candidate who can form a government to replace Boris Johnson. Right, so you have a no confidence vote in the government. So the government then has they have to like see if their new government, someone else can form a government in, in, in place of Boris Johnson. But that would be difficult. Uh, and in the meantime, Boris Johnson's government could say like, oh, well, we'll just have a new election right after October thirty first, right? So he could say, I'll have this no confidence vote, no problem. We'll just have a vote on October third. Oh, we'll have it. We'll have the election, the general election after October thirty first. After we. And this is making Jeremy Corbyn and a lot of other people very nervous because the constitutional issues of this is like, oh, well, we're gonna have this really important you know, event in our history where we leave the EU, but we're gonna have postpone the election until afterwards. Now, you can't have this major decision or action take place in the middle of an election. It's just, can't do this. So this is causing a constitutional issue within What's gonna happen? Again, I've given up. I've given up making predictions. I still hold out hope there'll be some last minute deal. I think Johnson's hoping that the EU will cave at the last minute. I think that's really dangerous. He's obviously signaling he doesn't carry it away and is willing to take the UK out of the EU, regardless, either way, October 31st. But we can see there would be some serious consequences economically and also for like the UK in the bigger picture. So we'll just wait and see. So can I take a couple questions? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 Um, 
you talked about what the economic consequences would be for Britain. What about the economic consequences for the EU? Uh, it's well, it's not good timing. Uh, with Germany going into recession, well, potentially going into recession or slowing down, and he's probably banking on that. The Germans okay because the Germans don't. Angela Merkel does not want a no deal Brexit, not just because it hurts Germany, but it's going to hurt everything, right? She was hoping that they'd get a deal. So, um, yeah, it will. Um, I mean, it could be bad, but the thing is, I think the mistake that the UK has always made was it's like this is going to hurt you just as much as it hurts us, and it's like no. I mean, uh, it's certain economies, like Ireland be hurt really bad, the Netherlands would be hurt really bad, but it's like this argument that it's like the German car industry is gonna be hurt, so they're gonna make Merkel cut us a deal. That's not gonna, that doesn't hold, uh, I think, so. And 450 million other people to work Right, on. yeah, yeah, so. But, I mean, if Johnson wants to play that brinksmanship, that game of chicken, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, he thinks think that, that that's going to be a big enough threat to them that they'll back off. We'll see. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Do you think that um, cyber interference by outside parties is relevant to this issue in a critical way at all? Yeah, there was an investigation in the UK uh, about this, and I can't remember. You know, there's always debated like, okay, even if it took place, how much impact did it have? You know. Uh, Russia, or I didn't want to say any country's names, but <laughs> a certain country has been trying to foment populist movements across the EU, against the EU and NATO for a while now. Uh, I can't remember what the, 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 you know, the, the findings were about the UK and this. Did you turn it to the... No, I just, I had read one article. This is just an example of, of what one of the findings perhaps um, came to is that the Russians were paying people to write in the comment sections of like online newspapers, you know, where you can go on the Seattle Times and write in the comments, and they were paying people to write pro-Brexit comments on Brexit articles that people would read, and then perhaps that would influence public opinion. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that I had read about. Did you? I don't think that the investigation turned up much Russian interference, mm -hmm. but there was definitely. Yeah, and there was also kind of the, um, I mean, there's big funders, like British billionaires, funding these campaigns. So, I mean, take that as you want to, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yes. I have a question. Um, so, when I was studying this earlier at Cornell, this mm -hmm. is way back in Tarot's era and things like that. Um, the Nordics were the only ones, or the first ones, to ask, how do we get out of this club if right. we don't like it? And, and the rest of Europe was like, what? Yeah. You know, we would actually do that? But then um, what I learned was that the EU, or if it will EC, whatever it was, would vote, they would have to vote them out. So in other words, the EU would have mm. to have a vote to approve, to approve yeah. this. So I wonder if there's another side to this, and we'll just wait and see. Yeah, well, they have to approve um, the deal, and that's the other thing. All the other 27 countries have to approve any deal with the UK. Okay. So that makes sense. The bar is pretty high. Yeah. So even Ireland could block this over the backstop if they don't like 
what they hear in terms of any change in the agreement. So the EU can't just like change the deal on the fly uh, because they got to get the 27 members unanimously to support it. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. so that's, a, that's where it's going. Yeah, yeah, so it's tricky. Um, yeah, any yes? Last question. Um, huh? I know internally now, Britain, there's a, a rise in poverty levels and pretty severe cutbacks in services. They're affecting people since the austerity measures of the Conservative Party. Mm. Is that seeming at all relevant to this? Or it seems like a different train of thought, and that kind of puzzles me. Yeah. Um, I don't know the current state of kind of social security. I mean, the, the big, the big issue in all of this is like NHS funding, you know. And you talked about like kind of some of the claims. Their big claim was we're gonna. The lever said if we get out of the EU, we're gonna pour all this money into the national health service, you know. And and like so, the money stays with us. Well, it was completely exaggerated, and it was kind of a little bit of fear mongering too. That this idea that the money goes to Europe and never comes back. Um, but do you have a Take on. Sorry, I keep putting you on the spot about Social Security in, in the UK. Um, I think the problem before the vote was the social um, mobility anyway. I was um, actually going to ask you about sort of how you thought class dynamics had into play with the mm. vote. I do think that that's class is so fundamental to British culture and it's it's so damaging in so many ways. And the vote, as you said, it was a lot of older, but also poorer people that voted for Brexit. And so it was things like the austerity measures that had inspired people to vote for that anyway, under the Conservative government. And then it sort of just got worse after we had voted for Brexit. Um, it's sort of scaremongering, I would say, on the part of conservative governments over their own austerity measures which are putting people into these positions yeah. and then they can blame the, the EU for all of these right. problems that the people who are living in poor council estates that are in, under the poverty line um, it's easy for them to blame the EU. That's a really good point yeah yeah that um, right the austerity measures you know again talk about the backlash with the eurozone crisis creating populist movements or fostering populist movements across Europe. In the UK, um, you had populist movements and the Brexit movement, but you also had, the, this is partly a result of the austerity measures pursued by the conservative government. So they kind of, and then the, the tradition for blaming Brussels for all the problems, kind of it kind of metastasized there. And that's the other thing, as you were saying, both Johnson and Rees-Mogg and lots of the people in the Conservative Party are very wealthy. They are from upper-class families. They're going to be Fine. Yeah. It's all the people that voted for them and for Brexit yeah. that aren't going to be fine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, my dad's hometown, Burnley, England, is kind of like the Gary, Indiana of Britain, and it voted like two to one for Brexit. So it's very labor, it's very working class, and it voted it voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. And it's kind of against your economic interests in some ways. Yeah. Um, but but there's really strong feelings about this, and it's a labor constituency, so it's kind of, you can see the divisions within the Labor Party. Um, but yeah, the class dynamics are, are, are pretty interesting um, in the UK uh, about this and so many other things. Um, especially like David Cameron, Reese Mogg, Boris Johnson. I can't remember if they all went to the same school, they all went to Eton or one went to Winchester or something. I mean, they're very upper crust and they're going to be fine through all this. So um, yeah, it's 
interesting set of issues uh, on that side. Um, Phil, have you, I just have one last question. Sure. Have you, have you examined much of the, like, our current administration's relationship perhaps with Morris well, I mean, Do you know what that could look yeah. like, or depending on the Brexit outcome, or yeah, I mean, Trump likes uh, Boris Johnson is kind of like Trump's buddy in a way. You know, they, he kind of models himself after Trump in the sense that it's like I don't play by the rules, and um, you know, he's kind of appealed to the U.S. Uh, and Trump that you know we can have a, we can have a deal, we can have a trade deal, and you know, I love deals. Um, so, you know, it would be the, you know, this, this, the, the kind of, you know, this kind of certain eye to eye on this. And the other thing that I find interesting, so, the, 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 you know, there's talk of a trade deal, like the U.S. keeps kind of holding it out, hence kind of like also the invite to Trump to come to like royal state visit and all this kind of thing. Um, the, uh, uh, whether that would happen anytime soon is, is interesting. It's questions about the special UK-US special relationship, um, which is being dangled to the UK over this. Um, and uh, also this kind of this brinksmanship that Johnson and Trump are both kind of keen on in their international negotiations. I find that kind of fascinating too. But there's definitely, uh, and they're both born in New York, interestingly. Interesting. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just have one little concluding slide, um, and uh, um, so to go back to John of Gaunt, I want to conclude with Shakespeare and conclude the, the, the passage from Shakespeare, which John of Gaunt's speech, even though today we look at it as this great statement of English nationalism, national identity, it was actually a lament. He was saying, we had it so good, we had everything right, you know, and um, so what has happened, though, is through this government, uh, of Richard II and others, that England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. So however, which way the Brexit situation goes, I, you know, it's pretty tough if you like love the UK and UK politics and history to kind of see how difficult this has been. Uh, it's, it's been a really tough episode and uh, I still hope that you know, it can all work out for both Europe and the UK. So, all right. So that's that's it. Thank you very much.